Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. Hey, good morning, Mercy family. Good morning. Hey, I reminded you last week, let me remind you again, Easter is coming. It's coming fast. It's only three Sundays away. Uh, Man, it's going to be awesome. Can't wait to celebrate with you. In fact, we've added a worship service at both campuses so that we can invite friends, family. Man, even yesterday, met a guy yesterday new to town. Like, man, do you have anywhere that you go to church? Because we'd love to have you here. Uh, People move, 120 people a day move to Charlotte. There are plenty of people that need to hear about the love of Christ at Easter. Such a wonderful opportunity. Uh, We're fasting and praying every Wednesday, expecting God to move on Easter. One of the things we're going to add into our Easter celebration this year is we're going to have a, a special offering that we take up on Easter, a financial gift we take up that we're going to give to a group of local churches in the country of Turkey who are ministering in their community that has just been devastated by the earthquake that hit not too long ago. Uh, And I think you probably, this probably makes sense to you, man. A natural disaster like that, that's an opportunity for a church to establish a relationship with its community that'll last for a generation. Like, man, that's the church that helped my mom and dad when we lost everything. And so we, as a sister church, get to give to help them be the hands and feet of Jesus right there in that community. You're going to hear more about our partner that we're um, partnering up with to get those funds, get those disaster relief supplies in there. But I wanted to go ahead and tell you that that is coming. Our um, our comms team wanted us to call this the Easter Generous Giving so they could call it the egg, right? Now, I can't stop them if that shows up on a screen, but uh, you've been warned, all right? Uh, with that said, I want you to open up your Bible to 1 Samuel 17. Today, y'all, we are looking at arguably the most well-known account in all of Scripture. Today, we are looking at David versus Goliath. And you've already heard it this weekend, haven't you? It's March Madness. We got a real David and Goliath story on our hands. 16 seed Farley Dickinson, the shortest team average height of player in the entire tournament. is going up against one seed, corn-fed Purdue, middle Midwestern Purdue with seven foot four Zach Eady, right? And what happens? Little guy beats the big guy, right? I mean, even if you've never opened the Bible before, you probably could tell me if I said, hey, give me the story of David and Goliath in a sentence. You would probably say something to the effect of small outmatched David defeats mighty Goliath. And because you know that much, the inspiration that you could take away from our time in 1 Samuel 17 would be, hey, you should be like David. You should trust God and have courage as you face the Goliaths in your life, which sounds great. Could go on one of those inspirational posters, right? It's like a little guy at the foot of a mountain 
be courageous like David or something like that. The problem is, while that is a point of this account, it is a byproduct of the main point. Be courageous and trust God like David is not the main point of 1 Samuel 17. It's a byproduct that only actually helps you if you know the main point. All right, so here's what I wanna do. I don't normally do this, but um, I'm gonna use a little uh, prop for illustrative purposes this morning. I went into Mercy Kids and stole some Legos from them, okay? I borrowed some Legos from them. I will give them back at some point, but they are fun. Everybody loves Legos, right? Or you're a parent that has stepped on them and you can't stand Legos. But uh, either way, here's the deal. When we talk about courage, we're gonna talk today about building up a wall of courage that will help you fight against the Goliaths in your life. So look, yes, I made a little, went ahead and made it because I don't wanna spend all my time in this, went ahead and made a little wall, okay? A little Lego wall. Now, here's the deal. Have courage like David. That's gonna be our secondary point today. It's gonna be this courage wall that we build up. And that's a good thing, right? The problem is if all you get out of this passage is have courage like David and you build that wall, well, then when the winds of anxiety and fear come without any foundation for your courage wall to stand on, it doesn't take much to knock it down, right? It takes just a little bit of wind to knock it down. Now, my point today is if you only take, have courage like David from this, and then the winds of anxiety and fear come at you and your courage fails, you'll be tempted to think, man, maybe my faith isn't strong enough, or maybe my faith is strong, but my God is weak. And you'll start deconstructing your faith like many have because their faith didn't stand up to the winds of the world. And the whole time you were treating a wall like it's a foundation. But if you were to actually understand the foundational meaning, every Lego set needs the big green square, right? If you were to actually understand the foundational meaning of David and Goliath and then build your wall of courage onto that, then when the winds come, it's gonna hold up, right? The winds of, of anxiety and fear come at you, your courage in the Lord will actually hold up. What we're gonna do today, and the reason I belabor this point and use a little illustration for it, is I'm gonna show you what the foundational meaning of David and Goliath is so that you can then build your courage, because you should take courage from this. You show you what to build that courage on. And I make this point because if you can grab this from David and Goliath, it will unlock how to interpret all Old Testament stories. All right, every single one of them has a secondary point and a foundational point. And the foundational point is often the same. All right, so that's gonna be my two points. We're gonna go through the text in 1 Samuel 17. And then we're going to see the foundational meaning of David and Goliath, and then how we can build courage on that foundation. Make sense? Good. All right, let's jump in there. Verse one of 1 Samuel 17, because first we get to just, we're going to walk through this awesome thing. Now it's 58 verses, so I'm going to summarize in some spaces, okay? Verse one, the Philistines gathered their forces for war at Shoko in Judah and camped between Shoko and Azekah in Ephesdamim. Now the Philistines are no joke. They're the most technologically advanced army in the known world at the time. They're the only ones who incorporate iron 
into their armor and into their weapons. I don't, we sometimes use Philistine as an insult to someone who is culturally antiquated, but they were not that. They were advanced. And the whole point that we're going to see is they were very intimidating. Verse two, Saul and the men of Israel gathered and camped in the Valley of Elah. Then they lined up in battle formation to face the Philistines. The Philistines were standing on one hill and the Israelites were standing on another hill with a ravine between them. Perfect, iconic battle scene, right? You got about a mile that exists between these two hillsides and onto that setting steps our main villain today. Then a champion named Goliath from Gath came out from the Philistine camp. He was nine feet, nine inches tall and wore a bronze helmet and bronze scale armor. The scale was intended to look like snake scales that weighed 125 pounds, the armor. There was bronze armor on his shins and a bronze javelin was slung between his shoulders. His spear shaft was like a weaver's beam and the iron point of his spear weighed 15 pounds. In addition, a shield bearer was walking in front of him. This is a big man, right? And I know there's a theory that says he, maybe he was six foot nine and not nine foot nine. The evidence is actually in favor of the text, but the point stands regardless of which size he is. He's huge. He's imposing. He's a giant compared to any warrior that they have seen anywhere in the, I mean, really, he's a giant compared to any warrior in scripture. And for the reader, for you and I, a light bulb should be going off. Y'all, this right here is the longest description of military attire in the whole Old Testament. Right here. Why would the author go into such detail in 1 Samuel 17 to tell us about this big, huge, intimidating figure? Do you remember 1 Samuel 16, 7? The Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or his stature because I have rejected him. Humans do not see what the Lord sees for humans see what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. We're now seeing that this verse that was the keystone, I told you, it's like one of the most important verses in First and Second Samuel. This is a reminder, God doesn't see as we see, it's applied not just to our finest choices in a king, but also to our greatest fears. Don't look at his appearance or his stature because I've rejected him. We as Bible readers should not be surprised at all. When I say Bible readers, I mean people familiar with the last passage. We shouldn't be surprised at all that a large imposing figure has come onto the scene. It's almost too obvious of a plot development. So verse eight, he stood and shouted to the Israelite battle formations. Why do you come out to line up in battle formation? He asked them, am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose one of your men and have him come down against me. If he wins in a fight against me and kills me, we will be your servants. But if I win against him and kill him, then you will be our servants and serve us. Then the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel today. Send me a man so we can fight each other. When Saul and Israel heard these words from the Philistine, they lost their courage and were terrified. What Goliath is proposing is called representative warfare. One man from each camp fights his representative for the whole camp. If your representative wins, you win. If he loses, you lose. And all you do, if he wins, 
you get a share in the victory, even though all you did was stand back on the hillside. And in the case of Israel, all you did was stand back on the hillside, absolutely terrified, confident that you couldn't win. Now, as you keep reading, you'll see that back on the farm, you got young David keeping sheep. He keeps making trip and in, making trips into town to play the lyre, the kind of guitar sort of instrument for uh, King Saul and back and forth from the farm to Saul, he goes, well, he's on the farm and his dad says, hey, listen, I want you to take some snacks to your three older brothers who are out in battle. Go check on them. So David, like any good responsible young man, he gets a sheep sitter for his sheep. And then he takes these little kosher lunchables, heads off to the battlefield and meets up with his brothers. He's talking with everybody. Verse 23, while he's speaking with them, suddenly the champion named Goliath, the Philistine from Gath, came forward from the Philistine battle line. He shouted his usual words, which David heard. And when all the Israelite men saw Goliath, they retreated from him terrified. This has been going on day after day after day. Well, David starts asking around about who this oath is and what kind of reward King Saul is going to give to the guy who takes him down. Verse 32, David said to Saul, listen, don't let anyone be discouraged by him. Your servant will go fight this Philistine. And Saul replied, you can't go fight this Philistine. You're just a youth. And he has been a warrior since he was young. David answered Saul, your servant has been tending his father's sheep. Whenever a lion or a bear came and carried off a lamb from the flock, I went after it. Yeah, you did. Struck it down and rescued the lamb from its mouth. If it reared up against me, I would grab it by its fur, strike it down and kill it. Your servant has killed lions and bears. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them for he has defied the armies of the living God. Then David said, the Lord who rescued me from the paw, the lion and the paw, the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. <laughs> it's pretty bold. And Saul says, okay, go. And may the Lord be with you. Now, what Saul's saying right there, if he was in the Southeastern United States, he would have said, bless your heart. Good luck, bud. You're going to die. Like, that's what he's saying right there. Okay. So Saul had his own military clothes put on David. He put a bronze helmet on David's head and had him put on armor. David strapped his sword on over the military clothes, tried to walk, but he wasn't used to them. He said, I can't walk in these. David said to Saul, not used to him. So David took them off. Now, before you start wondering, why would big old Saul put this on to David? Remember, like I said, the Philistines were using metal in all of their armor and their weapons outside of swords. The guys over in the Israelite camp didn't really have anything. Saul's likely the only guy with metal armor. All right. But it's not going to work. Obviously it's too heavy for him. And David's thinking you can't fight God's battle man's way anyways. Verse 40. So instead he took his staff in his hand and he chose five smooth stones from the wadi. That's the riverbed. And he put them in the pouch and his shepherd's bag. Then with his sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he despised him because he was just a youth, healthy and handsome. Remember, handsome means ruddy. Think early years, Paul Rudd. That's what we're looking at here, okay? Verse 43, he said to David, am I a dog that you come against me with sticks? All right, 
the trash talking portion of the scene has commenced, okay? Veteran battle-tested Goliath knows how to throw some shade. He cursed David by his gods. Come here, the Philistine called to David, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts. Okay, now David stir. What you got, David? David said to the Philistines, you come against me with a sword, spear, and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord of armies, the God of the ranks of Israel. You defied him. Today, the Lord will hand you over to me. Today, I will strike you down, remove your head, and give the corpses of the whole Philistine camp to the birds of the sky and the wild creatures of the earth. That ain't bad for a rookie, right? Now, what he says next matters a great deal because he acknowledges there are two audiences that'll be impacted by what's about to happen. He says, then all the world will know that Israel has a God. The whole earth's going to hear about the God who saved Israel. Verse 47, and this whole assembly, he's talking about God's people, will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's. He will hand you over to us. That's the call to the people of God. Well, here's what happens. Verse 48, when the Philistines started forward to attack him, David went quickly to the battle line to meet the Philistine. David put his hand in the bag, took out a stone, slung it, and hit the Philistine in his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down to the ground. David defeated the Philistine with a sling and a stone. David overpowered the Philistine and killed him without having a sword. David ran and stood over him. He grabbed the Philistine's sword, pulled it from its sheath, and used it to kill him. Then he cut off his head. I don't think we ever get that when we do this in our kids' area. Cut off his head. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they fled. The men of Israel and Judah, back on the hillside, shouted their battle cry and chased the Philistines to the entrance of the valley and to the gates of Ekron. Philistine bodies were strewn along the Shahiram road to Gath and Ekron. Verse 53, when the Israelites returned from the pursuit of the Philistines, they plundered their camps. David took Goliath's head and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put Goliath's weapons in his own tent. For the very last verse, he's going to bring it all, Goliath's head all the way to King Saul himself. And Saul's going to say, who are you? I'm David of Bethlehem. And I can just imagine him dropping it right there. Epic. Mike dropped on it. Thus endeth the story of David and Goliath. All right, we've seen a play out. So now our question's in front of us. What is the foundational meaning of this passage? What is it really all about? Because you've heard any number of things. I know I have. The bigger they are, the harder they fall, right? Don't stop believing. Hold on to that feeling, you know? What we know that it's not, I've already told you, it's not trust God and have courage like David. These have long been popular interpretations of this. I'm telling you they're off. In reality, David versus Goliath highlights a deeply important and central principle to how we read the whole Old Testament. Here it is. The foundational purpose of David and Goliath is to lead you to worship the Savior who fought and won your greatest battle for you. The primary purpose of the whole Bible is not to give you heroes to emulate but to reveal a savior God for you to worship. Think about the account for a second and see if you can see it pointing to the gospel message. God's people 
are terrified because there is an enemy too great for anyone to defeat wearing the scales of a snake and started to mock them. And so what does God do? He sends a young man from Bethlehem who agrees to face the giant snake on his own on behalf of the rest of God's people. The young man from Bethlehem doesn't go to battle the way we would expect him to. He goes without any armor, without any army. But he still goes out, though he goes out defenseless, and he is mocked by the enemy for his approach to battle. And yet alone, he takes down the enemy and stands over him victorious. And then all of God's people share in the victory that he won for them. The victory over the one that was sure to kill them all. Are you catching it? Are you seeing it? David is what your English teacher calls uh, an archetype or a foreshadow of his descendant, Jesus, who goes to face the giant snake. Satan is revealed as a serpent all the way back in Genesis. And he goes to face this giant serpent as a representative for all mankind. His brothers abandon him. The enemy mocks him. He was our representative in life, living the perfect life that we could not live. He is our representative in the battle against death. He goes up and dies in our place as a payment for our sin. He does not fight the battle the way we expect him to. David points us to Jesus, the greater David who paid our sin debt. But then instead of slinging a small stone to defeat the enemy, he dies, goes into death, and then rolls away a giant stone and walks out and stands victorious over death itself. That's Jesus. That's our king. And that's the whole point of this. The primary purpose of this account is to stir your love and worship in your heart that the God who saved his people then is the God who sent his son to save us from sin. And if you've received that gift of salvation from Christ, he's the God who has defeated your greatest enemy, hell itself. Our real Goliath is separation from God owed to us for our sin. That's the foundational enemy. So God sent Jesus to defeat that enemy for us. Now here, with that foundational meaning understood, now here is our secondary meaning. Here's how we build the wall, build up courage against the things that we face. Listen, because Jesus has defeated our greatest enemy, we can trust him as we face the lesser giants of our lives. I should just put this in there to complete the illustration. There we go. Y'all, this is courage building in and of itself. The way I've written this is intentional because it keeps lesser giants where they should be lesser. Eternal separation from God. That's our greatest giant and God has defeated him, but lesser giants are still there. Of course they are. I want to make sure you hear me not make light of the real big things that we deal with in life that seem overwhelming. Start with like the unknown future. I know my future is secure in Christ. So then with that foundation, the winds of the unknown future aren't going to rock me as much because I ground my courage about tomorrow in my certainty about forever. And I have the promise that God himself is with me 
So when it comes to something like a job, well, if I lose my job, maybe I'm worried about that. If I lose my job, it's not the end. It's not over because the God who defeated the real giant of eternal death and separation has said about my future, nothing changes based on my career. Maybe you get a terminal diagnosis or you're expecting some sort of diagnosis back. You don't know what it is. If you get a terminal diagnosis, be courageous like David, ain't gonna hold up. But you can say, my king has defeated death and he has promised me a forever home with no more sickness and no more death. So I will face this not with bravery, but with certainty that temporary pain cannot shake the foundation of the kingdom of heaven. I'll rejoice in my sufferings. This is crazy to the world to say rejoice in your sufferings. But Romans 5 is going to tell me I will rejoice in my sufferings in Christ because somehow in a way that I don't understand, but what God does in me is my sufferings are going to produce hope. And that hope does not disappoint. That's the giant of the unknown future. What about the lesser giant of approval of others? Come on, you know, you care about what people think. You do? Listen, I know it's in our teenage years that we're, that we really deal with that. And so now me having a couple of teenagers, two more, they're going to grow into that age. I'm like, listen, you don't have to care too much about what people think, but the reality is to all you teenagers out there, your parents still care what people think. Okay. We deal with it all the time, but here's the deal. In Christ, you have the approval of the only one whose opinion matters. So you build the courage block on the foundation of your acceptance by God in Christ. And then you can handle the fear of rejection of others. You can stop living for likes, stop posing for praise because you have acceptance. You got all the love you'll ever need in him. That's defense. Let's take it on the offense now and talk about courage as we go out into the world with the hope of the gospel. As you step out and share the gospel, what's the reality? That the Goliath of Satan himself wants you to fail? He does, but you have God with you, right? <laughs> I think we don't share Christ often because we're worried it won't work. That's what's what in our heads. It won't work or, or I'll mess up or I, I don't know how. I don't know the words. I'm not experienced. Listen to me. The God who defeated the grave gave himself to you. He's the one who does the work in saving others. So if he goes with you, you can share Christ with confidence, with expectation that the same God that defeated Goliath is going to keep winning battles. And he's going to keep, when it says, uh, when the scriptures say that we are, that nothing is going to stop, not even the gates of hell itself will stop the advancement of God's kingdom. Gates are a defensive weapon, right? They're a defensive mechanism. Gates aren't attacking us. We are storming gates. And the gates will not be able to hold up against God himself as his people go charge the gates of hell to see people come from death to life. Because God is with us. As we pray for God to heal, we can pray in confidence that the God who defeated death can heal. As we pray for God to bless our work, whatever line of work you're in, do it to the glory of God. Pray that he will bless it, not for our glory, but for his. As you pray for your marriage that feels so cold, so dysfunctional right now, it feels like there's a, a real Goliath in front of you. I'm telling you, it's not a problem for God. He loves you and he is stronger than your dysfunction. It's time to start praying bolder prayers and taking bolder steps, not because we are courageous, 
but because of the foundation our courage is built on. And there's great, here, here's the thing. As we do that, there is great beauty and hope in this. He is still going out in front of us and fighting our battles for us. We don't just stand on the foundation of Christ. We actually go behind him into our battles. He's still out in front. He calls us to take up armor. That's Ephesians 6. To join him in battle, but not in our strength, in his. It's a beautiful thing, the Christian life. It's scary. It's difficult. Don't let anybody tell you that all of your troubles go away. They don't. It's that you have something firm to stand on and you have one who's fighting your battles for you. It's a battle being fought in Jesus, with Jesus, for Jesus, and by Jesus. And one day we will rejoice with Jesus in victory, just like Israel rejoiced with David as he stood over Goliath. I was thinking this week, I grew up in a church setting and we had this hymn book and we sang, you know, probably the same 20 hymns. And that was what we sang week in, week out. You know, there was like just a few classics that have stuck in my my head and heart, I think in a good way. One of them, this song says, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ, my righteousness. And I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. And all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. What I want you to hear today is the hope that you have in Christ, that you can have courage as you face real, genuine battles that you have in your life. You can have courage if you will first plant yourself, build yourself, build that courage on the one who has fought and won your greatest battle for you. That's the hope we have in Christ. Let me pray for you. Actually, let me lead you in a time of prayer as we go to pray. Both of our campuses, if you would, let's just, let's take a moment and be honest before the Lord. If you would get into a posture of prayer, and I'll let you respond to God's word here. I want you to be honest with the Lord about whatever it is that you're, um, that's the Goliath in your life right now. I think that's a good thing for us to do. That's the thing that's dominating your life. It's what you're thinking about. It's where your mind goes to when it's idle. What are you thinking about? What has got you worried, nervous, anxious? Just be honest with the Lord. Lord, this is, you know. You've been praying about it a lot. Lord, this is what I'm dealing with. Now in your mind's eye, what I want you to see is Jesus walking out of the grave, meeting his disciples on the road, them overwhelmed because he has defeated death. He's alive. And surely the one who did that for you and you up on the hillside, terrified of Goliath, 
now get to share in the victory that he won, surely that one will provide for you now. So I want you to give that battle that you're in over to him. I want you to ask him for renewed trust, renewed and deepened faith in the foundation of the gospel. What Christ has done for you. Thank him for the hope you have in Christ. If you're not a Christian, receive that hope today. It's a decision everybody has to make. The Bible talks about the gospel, like I said a lot earlier, as a gift. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Whoever believes in him, believes that he went up on the cross for you. He died for you. He rose again. Whoever receives that will not perish but we'll have eternal life. It's an offer extended to you. It's a gift. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. It's a gift. He offers it to you today. Will you receive it? So God, I'm receiving the gift of salvation. Just tell him in your own heart. In your own mind, pray to him, God, I'm receiving that gift today. Christian, thank him for it. Thank you for saving me, God. Thank you for winning the battle I couldn't win. Thank you. And God, this is such a, um, a message I not only have the, the honor to preach, but I need it. I need it, Father. Got these things in front of me that seem too big. I can't figure them out, can't solve them, I can't defeat them. It's each one of us. Thanks be to God that our greater battle has been won for us. And that grants me peace and courage as I walk into this one. Thank you that you are with me and with us as we go into whatever this unknown thing is or whatever this very visible enemy, visible problem, visible situation, we don't know how to solve it. You are with us. Will that grant us peace that passes all understanding, Philippians 4, and guard our heart in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Father, for your grace in Christ. We love you. We worship you. We say thank you for the victory that you won for us. Amen.